The first guest of the evening is truly a poet. He's an artist. He is a friend and an inspiration to anyone who I think who has ever played the guitar uh, or tried to write poetry. Would you please welcome Gordon Lightfoot? <laughs> I climbed the redwood hill, t'was on a rainy day, to rise above the throng and talk with Mother Nature for a while. She told me of her love for the children in her trust, and of her grave concern for the likes of you and me and us. This is Carefree Highway Revisited, the show that celebrates the work of Gordon Lightfoot song by song, a proud member of the That's Not Canon podcast network. I'm your host, Mike Messner. And along with me today is a fellow Lightfoot fan from Fairport, New York, Edward Lewick. Ed, welcome to Carefree Highway Revisited. Oh, thank you, Michael. Glad to have you with us. So, Ed, how did you first get into Gordon Lightfoot's music? Well, I first learned of Gordon as a songwriter. He put out Early Morning Rain, and I think there were a number of, of artists that I was already familiar with, uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary, and and others who uh, did his songs, and uh, that was the one that started it off for me. Then, uh, to carry that further, uh, my friend Bob and my friend Dave, they knew a lot more about Lightfoot than I did. They had a couple of his albums. So we had a listening session over at Bob's record room, which was a phenomenal room. The walls of that room were lined with albums, and there had to be at least a couple thousand. He kept them in perfect order. And so we had a Gordon Lightfoot listening session, and uh, that really got me started. I think it was, uh, did she mention my name, that album, and The Way I Feel, the second and third albums. Well, those are good ones to start with, and they're certainly him, you know, at his unpolished best. This is before he was more heavily produced, as he would be a little bit later on in his career. What do you like about Lightfoot's music more generally? Well, you, you start with his songs and the lyrics may seem uncomplicated but you start getting into them and he's he's put a lot of thought into his lyrics he's just an unbelievable songwriter but then you you listen to a couple of his songs and his voice i mean even back when he first started out i really liked his voice it was just so crystal clear on so many of his early recordings and it carried through well at least the 70s and partially through the 80s but his voice has been a hallmark. And um, chord progressions. I love chord progressions. I'm a guitar player and tried to write songs myself. And I like listening to intricate chord progressions. And uh, that's, that's another thing that Lightfoot has often in his songs. Oh, he's got, I mean, he's a quintessential folky in that there's all sorts of great chord changes and great words. And it's really a step forward from the 50s, you know, electric music, rock and roll that we had in the early days. So he's really, you know, synthesized those two really, really well in his entire career. Now, Ed, how many times have you been lucky enough to see Lightfoot live? And what was the most outstanding performance you've ever seen him do? Well, I've seen him four times that I remember. First time back in 1971 at McMaster University, Hamilton. Then again at what used to be called Finger Lakes Performing Arts Center in Canandaigua, New York. And I saw him at Art Park, which is near, very close to Niagara Falls. 
in Lewiston, New York, very picturesque. And the last time was um, at Shea's Buffalo, which is a revamped old theater. And he played to a packed house there. That had to be 1998. Can't remember the exact year. So those four times, but I was most impressed the very first time I saw him. It was just him and Red Shea, Rick Haynes, and they sounded unbelievably great. The tightest, most well-knit sounding trio I've ever heard in my life. Their, their sound was just unbelievable. Well, he's you're talking about two sidemen that he worked with the most. Uh, and of course, Rick is still with the group. And I think it says a lot about the kind of relationship that Gordon built with his backing bands uh, when he started to have them. You don't get that kind of connection without some chemistry there, personal chemistry, as well as uh, musical chemistry. Have you ever had a chance to meet Lightfoot? I have never actually met him. I, I live vicariously through my friend Dave Menard, who has met Lightfoot at least twice that I know of. One time when he was waiting in back of Kleinhand's Music Hall in Buffalo. And um, another time, him and his wife were wandering around Toronto and they happened to see Gordon walking down the street. And uh, Dave recognized him right away. And Gordon uh, talked with him for a few minutes, uh, took a picture of Gordon, Dave. And he's told me about his conversations with Gordon, some very interesting ones involving bars in Buffalo and how he used Gordon used to come down from across the border and uh, go to bars because the drinking age way back when was 18 in the, in the States and it was 21 <laughs> in Ontario. Oh, gosh. I've never met him myself, but it's, I feel like I have met him. When I read that biography by Jennings called Lightfoot, I was fascinated by his story. So it's not just his music, it's the man that he is. I, I, I admire him tremendously. There's a lot to admire, not only his talent, but just the fact of his journey and the ups and downs that have gone along with that. So fantastic. Well, today we're talking about Redwood Hill, and that's from the Summer Side of Life album, which came out in 1971. And the reason that I really liked the song is that it's a shift for Gordon into bluegrass, and it's on a record that has a lot of country influences. But this song is also kind of an environmentalist song without being preachy or overbearing. So, Ed, why did you want to talk about this song today? Well, it, it's, it's a song that it took a while for me to really appreciate how good the song was. When the album first came out, I was more drawn toward the Summer Side of Life song and Talking in Your Sleep, New Vivones Ensemble, Miguel, Go My Way. There's so many great tunes on the album. I, I was just drawn to the other ones first, but then... When I got around starting to like it more was in 1976, I was in a group in uh, Fayetteville, Arkansas, and uh, we decided to look for the Gordon Lightfoot song to do, and uh, we picked a, a bluegrass sounding song, and that was Redwood Hill, and the more we practiced it, the more I really liked that song. That's when I really got hooked on that particular song. It's easy to get hooked on it because it's so jaunty. And I think a lot of times when we think about environmentalist songs, and I guess this is one, we may think of ones that are very heavy, you know, and very self-righteous. And this isn't any of those. I mean, it's actually fun to listen to. Not that any of his songs wouldn't be fun to listen to, but this one in particular. 
We'll be right back to our conversation with Ed Lewick about Redwood Hill. But first, a word from one of our podcast partners. Radio is so much different than it was in the 80s. We had it all. The music, the movies, the DJs, and morning shows. Back to the 80s Radio is a show from the 80s in podcast form. We bring the memories from that awesome decade back. Join Toscano and Chang every Friday as they take you on a ride back in time, sharing their experiences and laughs. Stop on by and discover some of the wacky things this crazy duo comes up with. They talk about it all. The good, the bad, and the ugly of the greatest decade. Don't miss the greatest 80s podcast in the world. Back to the 80s radio do you have a special anecdote or something personal about what the song means to you or how it affected your life or was it just the experience working with that group in Fayetteville well it's kind of strange but that was part of my uh coming down off of my high horse I used to think that my voice was really good back then but I was told on a couple of different occasions that our female singer at the time who happened to be my first wife, that she had the great voice. The, the, the guy that played with us, the stand-up bass, Dean, he, during the practices, he would be smiling and shaking his head and giving nods of approval whenever she was singing. So she would sing the lead on this song, Redwood Hill, and Dean was in heaven. <laughs> but also, one other thing, we went to this, you might call it a tryout for having a recording contract with a small record label. And uh, Debbie's voice, they, they picked right up on that. And me, she said, well, I'm, I'm not so sure about you. Let's, let's listen to you again. So then I got out, out of my harmony singing mode, which is like to blend in with everybody else. And I went into my lead singing mode. And she said, oh, now I can hear you. You do have a good voice. You oh, know, like not as, not, as, not as good as hers. Yeah, that's um, kind so. of damning with faint praise, though, isn't it? Yeah, that. That finally woke me up. Uh, I wasn't the great singer I thought I was. <laughs> I don't have any particular story about the song, but you know, yours sort of makes up for it. I think for me, the best place that I can imagine myself listening to this song would be if I was in Tahoe or up in Northern California where my in-laws live. And this song was written in Northern California. We'll talk about that in a second or two. But it would be on a rainy day looking out at the Redwoods, and it would probably be during the afternoon, you know, after lunch or sometime when you're maybe contemplating a nap. Now, if you had to pick a time of day and a place to listen to this song, Ed, what would it be? It would be when I was alone, either driving around in my van or alone in my residence and listening to Gordon sing it. And uh, then, as vain as I am, I would try to sing it like Gordon, and then I'd listen to the playback, and I'd say, okay, well, I'm still not as good as I thought I was, and, but not, you know, hardly anybody is as good as Gordon Lightfoot. Whatever he wants, he has such a command over that voice. Incredible. I've seen him, you know, do vocals that he gets in one take just because the producer, whomever it is, is just so he's just got a second sense Lightfoot does, you know, about what he needs to add to any particular song that he's doing. Let's talk a little bit about the genesis of Redwood Hill. Do you know anything about how the song got written? I mean, I have my own angle on it, but I'm wondering if you know anything about how the song was actually composed. Well, I think. There was a time when he went for a road trip 
with the Good Brothers and some other people up to uh, uh, north of where they happened to be, somewhere near San Francisco. And Lightfoot was all set for a road trip. He's always restless, it seems like. And so there were two vehicles, and they went up to some place that's got a, a name of... Uh, Fort Bragg and, is the place you're talking about. Oh, okay, yes, Fort Bragg. And he had a journal entry, and I saw on YouTube a video in which they read that journal entry, this old crumpled up journal entry. Well, Gordon was in the audience at the time. This was probably about eight, 10 years ago when they were doing some remembrance of that road trip. And then after that was read on this same YouTube video, the Good Brothers played Redwood Hill. They did a really good job with it. And they were bluegrass performers, if I remember right. I mean, I know that they were singer-songwriters. So the influences on the song were kind of clear and present, weren't they? Yes. I mean, one of them played the banjo, and I think another one might have played like a, a mandolin or something like that or a guitar, but they, they had a, a number of different instruments with all the people that were on that stage, and uh, it sounded very much bluegrass, that bluegrass feeling that Gordon had in, in his rendition of Redwood Hill. They had that same bluegrass feeling but it was more harmony-oriented, and Gordon's is more, he's got the exact, uh, that confined control over when to be powerful and when to tone it down a, a bit. He's just unbelievable that way. You know, one observation that we could make is that Gordon generally doesn't have a whole lot of backing vocals on his records, or at least he did not in his real heyday. There are people who did background vocals, but he doesn't harmonize with a whole lot of other singers, uh, except for doubling his own voice. And he did the same thing on this song. We'll talk more about who was on the album a little bit later, but let's talk about the lyrics a little bit. I climbed the Redwood Hill, t'was on a rainy day to rise above the throng and talk with Mother Nature for a while. And this is so typical Lightfoot. I mean, he loves being out in nature. We know that. Yeah. We also know that he has a thing for rain. Uh, we, we rainy day people and the looking at the rain. And now he's mentioning the rain here again. I love the use of the term the throng because it shows oh. that he's conscious about their might be too many people in the lowlands. And if he was coming from San Francisco or from the Bay Area, I can tell you that there are a lot of people who live in the Bay Area. Yes. To go up on a mountain or a hill, just to get away from uh, a lot of the hustle bustle of everyday life and all of the millions of people, and even up on the top of a hill in, in the Redwood area, I imagine, is quite the opposite. Oh, yeah. I mean, it really is a place where you can talk with Mother Nature for a while, like he, he said. We'll be right back to our conversation with Ed Lewick about Redwood Hill. But first, a word from one of our podcast partners. Is that song really a cover? What instrument are they playing there? What do those crazy lyrics mean? If you're the kind of person who thinks about stuff like that, you're in luck because I've got just the podcast for you. How Good It Is chooses a single song each episode and takes a dive into the story behind the song and the artist who made it famous. I'm Claude Call. You can find me in your favorite podcast software or just point your browser to howgooditis.com. How good it is. She told me of her love for the children in her trust and of her grave concern for the likes of you and me and us. So 
I think he's getting the sense that in the 1970s that we were poisoning the environment actively as people and that we were abusing and manipulating nature for our own ends. But then he also sees that Mother Nature is being gentle. I mean, she's showing gentle emotion. She's not raging. She's concerned. Can you remember, was the zeitgeist back then such that there were a lot of people who were getting the sense that the environment really mattered? I think so. I think it was, it was during the Vietnam War, so that was kind of taking the forefront. But there were a number of people that were starting to write about environmental issues and uh, I was starting to get into it myself a bit. So I think it was starting to creep into the subconscious and the, with some people, very uh, much charged up. But we're getting to the point where we're spoiling our own nest here and let's start doing something about it. And here we are so many years later and the cry for don't spoil the climate, it's still being said and we're still flailing away here. You know, I read something this morning saying that we're running out of time as a species to stop using fossil fuels, and it will get to the point fairly soon where, you know, it really will be irreversible. I mean, the kind of damage that we've done. Crying though she was, she did speak these tender words. The things that I am, I could not change for any man. Now, that's a rebuke to people that are exploiting natural resources, but it's not calling out any one individual person in particular. She's saying that humanity writ large is to blame. She wasn't looking at the songwriter. She wasn't looking at Lightfoot and saying, you need to do something. But it comes back to this idea that we cannot bend nature. We are not in charge of nature. Chief Seattle once said, Earth does not belong to man. Man belongs to the earth. And I think that's really what he's trying to capture here. Yes, I, I'm, I tend to agree. It's, it's not really like he's chastising an individual or he has this way with lyrics that they turn out to be perfect in the sense that he's telling us I, Mother Nature has a grave concern and we really can't depend on Mother Nature to change herself. We have to do it. Yeah, she will not change. We're the ones who have to adapt to her because she was here first. I tried to comfort her, ah, but she would not be still. And this is maybe the most mysterious part of the song to me. How do you comfort Mother Nature? Can you imagine, Ed, what that conversation would have been like? I mean, if somebody is trying to speak to Mother Nature, if you're having a conversation with Mother Nature, how do you comfort her under those circumstances? I don't know. And I, my own way of interpreting is that Mother Nature is inconsolable and she just keeps crying. And that's why if crying equals the, or is a symbol of the rain that's falling and falling as it stands when he wrote it and as it stands still to this day, Mother Nature is inconsolable and we are nearing the precipice of our own existence here. I don't want yeah. to sound dramatic. I well, don't want no. to sound dramatic. Oh, I think you're right on. And we're certainly, you know, closer to it than we were 51 years ago. I don't think there's any doubt about that. And how the rain did fall as I found my way back down the Redwood Hill. And it's pretty clear to me, and you nailed it, that the rain is nature's tears at the pain that man has inflicted on her so that she is inconsolable. And he certainly can't stop the rain from falling. Nobody can. 
then yes. he repeats the bridge uh and then he goes back to the last bit he mixes up the lyrics just a little bit i tried to comfort her uh, but she would not be still i'll not forget that day when mother nature cried on redwood hill now we don't know the exact date when lightfoot had this experience and we don't know that he literally climbed up a hill by himself to commune with nature but we do know that he made this road trip so i'm thinking he was probably extrapolating on the experience just a little bit to write the song do you get that impression also yes during his documentary if you could read my mind he didn't mention this song in specifically but he said a lot of his songs they may be based on some occurrence in his everyday life, but the words and the music somehow almost write themselves when you really get into the right zone. And I think that was one of the times he came up with a brilliant analogy. And the bluegrass touch for it was the final thing where he's not going to be preachy, but he wants people to listen to it, listen to what he's saying. And uh, the bluegrass feeling helps to ease that rather doubtful outlook. I don't think I could have said any better than you did. Stepping away from folk music for a second, I wanted to tell you about Newsly. It's an audio app for iOS and Android that picks up web articles about the most trending topics on the web at any given moment and reads them to you in a natural human voice. For the first time in the history of the internet, the web has become listenable. You can browse articles from topics you choose and start playing the narration right away. And they have podcasts as well, trending podcasts from over 40 countries, including, of course, Carefree Highway Revisited. Download and use Newsly for free now from www.newsly.me or from the link in the show notes and use promo code CHR2022 to receive a one-month free premium subscription. That's www.newsly.me. Now, this was originally on Summer Side of Life in 1971, as we've said. That's his seventh album. And I can tell you that my favorite musical aspect of the song you mentioned this, was the Dobro. And the reason I find it so intriguing is that, number one, it's perfectly done. It's done judiciously, but it's really nicely done for the fills that you hear, you know, at the tail end of every line. And the interesting thing, Ed, is that there's no Dobro mentioned in the album credits. So I'm thinking somebody must have snuck in there, and it might have been one of the Good Brothers, because the Good Brothers are not listed on the actual album credits either. So I just thought that was interesting. Do you have a favorite musical aspect of it? Well, let's start with that Dobro fill uh, that you mentioned. It becomes like a conversation. Crying though she was, bum, 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 bum. You know, the Dobro mm-hmm. fill. She did speak these tender words. And so the, the Dobro is like Charlie Brown and the teacher, which is a trombone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Wah, 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 wah. Yeah, that's a good analogy. I like that. <laughs> well, it becomes like a conversation in a way with English words and dobro filling and kind of throwing it back to the English phrasing. It really is. And I don't know that they wanted to be really overt about that because they don't want to distract from the overall message of the song. But it does work out perfectly that the dobro is just kind of 
bringing in that sort of descant that you would find in a lot of bluegrass songs, but it really worked out well. The people who played on this, apart from Lightfoot, of course, okay, Red Shade, Jerry Shook, and Chip Young all played guitar on this. Rick Haynes, Junior Husky, James Rolleston, Henry Strzelecki all played bass. Uh, Kenny Buttry, I think, was the drummer who was playing on this particular song, but we also had Buddy Harmon and Jim Isbell playing on the record. David Brown, Farrell Morris were both playing percussion. Vassar Clements played the violin. He did a nice job with that. Charlie McCoy played harmonica. Pig Robbins played piano. And then the Jordanaires, who were Elvis's backup singers in the 70s, sang background vocals. Now, they didn't actually sing on this track, but they did sing on the title track of the album. And it goes back to the whole idea of background singers that I mentioned. So this is really a tour de force. All these talented folks, and it was recorded in Nashville. So my sense is that a lot of these folks were just studio guys who were kind of there for whomever happened to be in town that particular week. I don't know if you're familiar with any of the names besides the ones that always go along with Lightfoot, like uh, Red Shea and Rick Haynes. Do any of these other names ring a bell for you? Um, After I did some research on this particular song, Vassar Clements, uh, with that violin, he's certainly leading the way right right from the get-go when the song starts. You know, Vassar's helped many people playing along with them on albums. And like they say about Nashville, uh, that one song by, I think it was The Love and Spoonful, Nashville Cats been playing since they babies. Yeah, as clear as country water, yeah. There, there's so many guitar players in Nashville, and the top level of those are the studio musicians who are probably better guitar players than just about anybody else in the entire world. Oh, yeah, they don't miss a thing. I know that Chet Atkins was around Nashville in this time. I think it would have been such a kick to have had him guest on a, a Lightfoot album. Oh, that would have been tremendous. Not that these guys needed any help on this song, but I thought that would have been fun. According to setlist.fm, Lightfoot has never played this song in concert, or at least yeah. there is no record of it. And I can understand why, because if you want to have a song like this, you really would need to be bringing along an ensemble on tour with you. And that costs. And Lightfoot is not predominantly a bluegrass artist, nor has he ever done a full-on bluegrass record. But I think it would have been fun for him to have been on the Grand Ole Opry radio show or have played at the Ryman Auditorium in Nashville with a group like this and doing this live. I can imagine it. Even if he were to play it back in the 70s and 80s, if he were to play it with his present band but have a couple of guests people come up just for a bluegrass number. They just happen to be in the audience. That would be a, a tremendous addition to his usual concert fair. Yeah, I don't know if Gordon would ever be quite that spontaneous. I mean, I think he's pretty <laughs> organized when it comes to music, but I think he could probably, if he were playing in Tennessee, I think he could probably arrange for some of these guys to come in and, you know, just sort of one-off guest on those songs. But it hasn't happened yet. The song wasn't released as a single, and I can understand that because it's not really top 40 material. It wasn't in 1971, and it's not now. 
but the album went to number three in Canada, number 38 in the United States, number 40 in Australia. If it did chart in the UK, I don't have any statistics of that. So it showed that Lightfoot was still certainly popular in North America and reasonably popular with the rest of the English-speaking audience. The song's been re-recorded by six different artists, Vassar Clements, of course, Arbuckle Mountain Boys, The Chapmans, The Country Gentlemen, Country Gentlemen have done quite a few uh, covers of Lightfoot songs, The Cream Cheese Good Time Band, (laughs) and John McLaughlin. And John was on our show a few months back talking about Canadian Railroad Trilogy. Ed, have you ever heard any of the cover versions of this song? Well, I listened to on YouTube, the, they were the country gentlemen, and that was good. And then there was the one video that had the Good Brothers with a couple of uh, other sidemen doing that performance. It was kind of like uh, maybe eight, ten years ago, kind of reliving that road trip. In, in some bar, Gordon was, was in the audience, and he watched him perform this, and the Good Brothers did Redwood Hill. Yeah, I just don't know if that song was recorded for a record or for a general release. But certainly, yeah, the performing it, I don't doubt that at all. So, Ed, as we're kind of wrapping up here, who would you like to hear cover this song that hasn't done it, either from modern music or from groups that have come and gone since it was originally recorded in 71? You mentioned the Good Brothers. Anybody else? There's a couple of country singers that, I think would have the capacity to do it justice. Chris Stapleton, I think he just won a couple of Grammy Awards. So he's one. And another uh, is Luke Combs. Right. Um, I'd like to see him give it a go. So those two come to mind. Yeah. For me, I would love to hear Alison Krauss because she was my first real entree into any sort of bluegrass. My wife has one of her CDs, Alison Krauss and Union Station. Or the old Manassas band, the one that uh, backed up Stephen Stills in the early and mid-70s. Because they were great doing bluegrass and just about any other genre. Okay, Ed, let's uh, wrap up here. If you could have a say over Gordon's set list on his current tour, what would you like him to play as his opening song? Would it be Redwood Hill or would it be something else? I think Redwood Hill would be a, it would be nice, but I think it's, Probably be too much of a shocker to start off with that much of a power song. Did she mention my name? Would be a nice song to to start off your concert with if you were Gordon Lightfoot. That's a good one. All right. Good choice there. Well, Ed, thank you so much for being on the show today. It's always fun to talk about Lightfoot's music. It's especially fun to talk about somebody who has such a close connection to it. And I hope we can have you back on the show again sometime. Oh, thank you, Mike. I've really enjoyed this show and I enjoy your listening to, I think it's such a unique thing that you go through it song by song, but Gordon Lightfoot is one songwriter and one artist that really deserves that kind of attention. I'm so glad that you are doing this podcast. Well, God bless you. Thank you for saying so. And thanks for listening, everyone. If you'd like this well enough to listen to the whole thing, tell somebody about it. Carefree Highway Revisited is on Apple, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our website is www.lightfootpodcast.com, and our Patreon page is www.patreon.com slash carefreehighwayrevisited. You can reach me, Mike Messner, at teachermike72 at gmail.com.
Our next episode will be coming out on or about the third week of April, and it will feature Lawrence Burke. He'll be coming on to talk about Shadows from the 1984 album of the same name. Until then, this is Mike Messner reminding you, run for the roses, but don't forget to stop and smell them. We'll see you next time. Talk with Mother Nature for